Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. You're listening to Morning Glory, by the way, on Soho Radio, and uh, I welcome my guest, David Keenan. Hey, James, how you doing? I'm doing really... You know what, man? It was so lovely to see you walking around the corner. <laughs> I thought, there he is, David Keenan. We haven't seen each other for, for ages. No, I mean, it's, this is my first solo trip to London in two years, would you believe? Wow. London, insane. London has been missing you, I, I'm, I'm feeling the love on the streets, I'll yeah. be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was going to put it another way, but there you go. So, <laughs> so you're here today, just basically, just because you're a mate of mine, and we're going to talk about books and talk about records. Right. Um, I played you uh, Richard Hell, I Belong to the Blank Generation, yeah. and uh, you were telling me how much you've been listening to a lot of his music recently, and you, your first choice today was The Gun Club, which you've just been listening to. And um, both those records are very sort of early 80s records, but they both embody an amazing spirit, amazing spirit of rock and roll, don't they? Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, especially with the Voidoids, I'm a massive Robert Quine man. I think he's one of the greatest guitarists of all time. Yeah. And in fact, one of the records I've been playing a lot this year is the new reissue of Destiny Street. Right. It's been remastered by Richard Hell, and it's never sounded more savage. Absolutely amazing. See, I really need to hear that record. In fact, you know what I'm going to do straight after this show? I'm going to go and buy it. Brilliant. You won't That's... regret it, man. No, well, I, you know, and thank you, thank you as well. So, and also, I gave you a little bit of information that the Gun Club, their second album, which we were just talking about, mm-hmm. was produced by Chris Stein from um, Blondie. Well, I don't know and why you... I had no idea of that. I, I you, a man of letters and words who knows everything about everything, didn't know that. That did not, man. I feel as though we could finish this interview right now and I'll be winning <laughs> 10 to 0. I'm going to walk out in a half. No, you can, you, can, you can walk out in any which way you like, mate. Actually, any which way. No, but um, you were telling me that you were once met Chris Stein from Blondie. I, I did. I hung out with uh, Debbie Harry and Chris Stein years ago. This is like when maybe the first Blondie comeback and they, they played a show, maybe it was at the Barrowlands or something. And I happened to be in the hotel where they were partying afterwards. So I was like, I can't miss this opportunity. And um, I'm a huge fan of Lester Bangs, so right. I think Chris Stein was pretty annoyed because the first thing I asked him was, wow, what was Lester Bangs like? Rather than, you know, <laughs> about Bondi. Oh, what a great show. And he, 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 was really anno- he was really annoyed. He just said Lester Bangs was a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. That's, which is exactly what you wanted to hear. Yeah, in a way, yes, Absolutely. What you yeah. So, I mean, we just... Obviously, we're talking there about going to gigs and stuff, and you... Uh, you grew up uh, in Scotland uh, in the 70s and 80s, didn't yep. you? Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, you, you very recently celebrated your 50th birthday. Congratulations yeah. for reaching so such much. a milestone. Yep. Uh, so ha- growing up, music, obviously, being, being Scottish, uh, I don't know, music must have been so integral to your early life and your early formation. Well, how did that all come about? Was it was it was it friends or what was it? No, it was no friends. I was going to gigs on my own at first. I didn't know anyone who was into weird music because I came out of heavy metal. I was really into science right. fiction fandom and comics, and I was really into heavy metal because everyone who I hung out would just listen to heavy metal. Right. I hung out with people at the astronomy club, and everyone would listen to heavy metal there. But then I, I got into music through fanzines. It was a right. DIY thing that attracted me because I used to get science fiction and comics fanzines 
fanzines from like Virgin Megastore and then I began to see these fanzines that, that were similar style but they were about music mm. and not only that they were about music that was happening in Glasgow right then yeah. so I bought some fanzine and I read about the pastels right. and I was like oh my god this sounds amazing and uh, so my first gig was in April of 1987 and it was the pastels and the Vaselines at Fury Murray's wow. and I wasn't I think I was 17 so I wasn't old enough to get in and I'd never been to a gig so I asked my dad what are gigs like and he said he was in a pericomo so he was like well, well what happens at a gig is you'll sit at a table and everyone will be wearing suits there'll probably be table service and stuff there'll be an intermission blah, blah. I was like cool so I borrowed my dad's suit and my dad drove me to the gig I got into the gig and as soon as I walked in I was like oh my god everyone looks like the Ramones except me you know I looked like some kind of absolute tosser on my dad's old suit and to make it worse I turned round and there was a tap on my shoulder and my dad was in the venue buying me a Coke. No. Yeah, so he was too worried about me. So then what happens is he makes friends with the bouncer and he sits on stage with the bouncer while no. the pastels are playing. And I'm in the mosh pit and every time anyone shoves me, my dad gets down and gets people out of the way. <laughs> I, was, I mean, it's beautiful. You know, my, my dad died in 2013 and I have these magical... It was a really, I was embarrassed at the time, but I look back and I think, how no, beautiful was that? No, that is absolutely beautiful. That that influence that the, our parents have, and they, they kind of want to nurture you, but then course there comes that moment when they let you go yeah don't they now yeah. do, 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 do you remember the moment when they let you go yeah i do i mean i you know you're so quick to want to grow up you know and yeah. you want to escape home and now there's nothing that i would like to do more i mean i feel quite moved on about it but there's nothing that i would rather do more than, now than be able to go back to airdrie and yeah, my mum and course. dad's old house and, and stay with them because i mean i really miss all that but i was so I so wanted to escape Airdrie. I so wanted to get to Glasgow and get into music and start writing. And so I remember when I moved out, I went to Glasgow Uni and for my first year I was commuting from, from Airdrie. And then I made some friends and they had a room and they said, do you want to move in? And um, I can remember the day that my mum drove me to the flat and then afterwards she said that she, after she dropped me off, she walked over to Byers Road and broke down in tears because oh, yeah. she realised that was me leaving. That was you know? it. No, uh-huh. it. It is a big thing. I mean, I remember doing the same thing with my daughter olive when she she's actually at glasgow university as yeah. you well know and uh-huh. i remember jillian and i my wife and i uh, went up on the train with her and uh, you know just we actually did the from from london to glasgow there and back in a day we were not going to stay the night we just no we right. can't do it we dropped her off at a university accommodation and again as we were waving goodbye at glasgow station it just felt that's it now no. that's it yeah. you know they've they've gone they've flown the nest yeah. you, and it's and it's a, it's it's quite a weird thing it's yes. a weird thing anyway let's listen to some music so we can have a little cry to ourselves <laughs> um what do you want to listen to because you've brought a lot of tunes in do you remember um why don't we go for jubilee street by nick cave and the nick bad cave. seeds that sounds perfect let's listen to jubilee street by nick cave and the bad seeds On Jubilee Street There was a girl named Bee She had a history But she had no past You are one of the only people, or not the only people, of somebody who I know who's so enthused by the written word and it's so important to you and you need to tell people about it through your books and through your talking, Mm -hmm. when you're talking on interviews like this. it's, It's so important to you. Now, how has that come about? Where did that love of the written word come from? 
you know, it first came from... I when I got into music, I was actually maybe even arguably more of a fan of music writing than I even was of music. I, you know, <laughs> you always think that I, I, I want to, I wanted to be a music writer. I wanted to write about music, and it's weird because most people say that music writers are like frustrated musicians. Yeah. Well, I was a musician who was a frustrated music writer. Right. I wanted to write about it more. <laughs> and I think where I, where I got that, the first book that really made me passionate about that was Lester Bang's Psychotic Reactions and okay. Carberry are done. Fantastic book. Yeah, and I mean to me, I like I enjoy Lester Bang's writing about Lou Reed as much as I enjoy listening to Lou Reed. It well, gets me the same fact, thrill. In fact, lots of the times it's probably better than listening no. to Lou Reed. Oh, oh no, there's nothing better than listening to Lou Reed. <laughs> there is nothing better. <laughs> well, I don't know. There's, there's been some pretty dodgy albums. But anyway, <laughs> moving on. God. So, so you, so you were a frustrated music writer being a musician, but eventually, so you, en- you eventually end up at the Wire magazine, mm-hmm. which was a very you were you were there for quite a long time, weren't you? Yeah, but tw- uh, over twenty years. Over oh, twenty years. Uh-huh. I mean, and you kind of. I wouldn't say you individually, but you helped redefine that paper in terms of because it was very sort of jazzy orientated, and and it's and it's now become this this underground music bible, yeah. which, dare I say it? And I think you were very integral in that. So was that something you had to fight for? Well, I'd like yeah, I'd like, I'd like to think I was one of the, the the writers responsible for widening its remit and moving into underground rock, rock and things like that. It was very very much a jazz magazine when I started. I actually just thought I wasn't smart enough to be able to write for The Wire. Right. I, I, I loved it, and <laughs> yeah. I used to read it, but I, was, I, I would never dare send them anything. And then the, the weird thing that happened is I moved to London, and honestly, the week I moved to London, I, I was writing for Melody Maker at the time, and I wrote a review of a, a Japanese underground compilation that featured Keiji Hino, who's one of my favourite musicians of all time, and Tony Harrington, who was the editor of The Wire, left a message on my answer machine saying, I really loved that piece in Melody Maker. Would you like to come and write for The Wire? Wow. And that, was, that was when I just moved to London. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe that. You I thought have, the street are paved with gold. I was like, my brain must be bigger than I thought. I, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I loved it. And The Wire was a, a, a place of great freedom for me. They gave me total freedom to write about what I wanted. When I would do a column, I would pick all the records that I was reviewing for that column myself. So it was a place of great freedom and it's a place where I really I really feel as if I became a writer. A writer. Yeah. So while you're writing all those reviews and doing the interviews and introducing this underground music to the world, were, you, were these... Fo- ideas for books formulating in the back of your mind the whole time or was that something that you, you just wanted to write about the music you didn't really think about books or was that something always there no it was always there and I thought I, I, I became a writer because I think writing about music is a very difficult thing that's why most music writers like, write about lyrics because mm. it's, you know, it's all they can analyse and I can't stand I'm not really interested I'm interested in sound and I wanted to write in a way that caught the sound a sort of euphonious sort of rhythm and, mm. and they, they, they didn't betray it they didn't over analyse it too much you know but in the back of my mind yes I did know I, I wanted to be a novelist um, and I, I was always heading towards that and I always knew that I would write a book about what it was like to grow up in a small working class town yeah. in the 70s and 80s and have your life changed by art and music because even though I grew up near Jersey, which is regarded as a pretty rough place and it is certainly today it really is yeah. but um, I, I didn't see it like that I had the most magical childhood ever it was amazing it seemed like a place of, of, of great adventure and excitement where anything was possible and so I always said one day I will write about this in gratitude one of yeah. the things all my, I write all my books out of is a sense of gratitude, a sense of thanks for the experiences I've had right. in my own life, and I wanted to pay that back. So I knew in the back of my mind I would always write this as Memorial Device, my first novel. But I was so busy doing music writing, I just never had the time. So what I began to do is, when I got into my 30s, I was like, okay, it's now or never. If you're going to be this novelist, you need 
write these damn novels. So, and I didn't know how to start. I didn't know anyone that wrote fiction. I didn't know how to get published. Um, so I just sat down and began writing a novel. And it was the worst novel ever written. <laughs> and I was about to give up. I was like, I'm never going to be a writer. This is terrible. It's excruciating. But I said to myself, you know what? If I stop now, that's why I won't be a writer. Writers give up when they realise how bad they are. But I decided, even though I'm terrible, I'm not giving up. Right. So I made a holy vow. I made a holy vow that I would complete this worst novel of all time in a year. And I told myself that once it was completed, I would destroy it utterly because I wanted to convince myself that I could write hopelessly because that is the only way you can become a writer. Mm. Write without any expectation. In fact, I wrote with an expectation that I was going to destroy it. And I did it. It sounds very, uh, very Bill, Bill Drummond-esque. Well, I love Bill. I'm very close with Bill and yeah. I, 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 I admire his approach to these things and yeah. we have a lot of similarities in terms of that. What I did was... Um, not only did I, once I completed the book, not only did I delete it from my laptop, I took a hammer and I smashed my laptop wow. to pieces to make sure it could never be retrieved. I had to do a ritual act that would make me a writer. And once I smashed it with a hammer, I got a new laptop, I sat down and I wrote this as memorial device. So it was pretty much, this is the end of this chapter and now this is the beginning of the next chapter. It's, it, it, and it, it had to be something that violence and that's obvious rather than just in your head oh round about 2000 so and so I decided yeah. it was a, no that is the point yeah that is the point right we should listen to some music what do you want to listen to uh, what about Charlie XCX Pink Diamond yeah that's perfect <laughs> So, um, Monument Maker's out, uh, you're talking, there's all things happening online, and it's one of those novels that I guess, imagine, I haven't read it yet, but I am going to read it, especially after this conversation. It's going to last for a long time. You were telling me earlier on that you've got something else up your sleeve as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been down, one of the reasons I'm down in London is me and my editor, Lee Braxton, I've been working on an edit of my next novel, which is uh, coming out in next August. Okay. And um, it, it, the cool thing is it's actually a prequel to This Is Memorial Device. Oh, and it's oh. actually set in Airdrie of the 1960s. So it's like the psychedelic scene that predates the post-punk oh, scene. yes, I'm into that. It's really exciting. I'm so psyched to get it out. Oh, it's wow, really, yeah. And we just, the past couple of days, we just basically did the first edit and it's, it's yeah, it's looking amazing. It's really exciting because, like, as I was saying, I don't... You know, I don't bully my characters. I, I, I can't bring a character into a book unless they want to appear. But I'm always excited in case one of the characters that I've written about before will return because they're like people you get to know and you want them to turn up. So when I was writing this book, I didn't consciously set out to write a prequel to a Memorial Device, but suddenly a character called Teddy Ohm, who's a record collector in, mm. in, in, in Memorial Device, I realised that he was older and came from the psychedelic generation. And I realised I was writing the story of him in the 60s and his friends. Wow, amazing. Yeah. I was just thinking about that whole uh, book thing and the, the music thing. I think when when artists when uh, musicians make records they they have what uh, is known as a sort of an a and R man who may help them sort of formulate the the uh, the record and some A and R men are really good at their job and some are awful mm-hmm. uh, in the book world with publishing I mean you've got you work with a a, 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 a really good guy called Lee and uh, does. Do, do the books for you, I, mean, I know you say that you don't feel as though you, you write them, do you feel as though they're more collaborative than people give them credit for? Yes, totally. Well, but I think that me and Lee Braxton have quite a, a unique relationship between an editor and a writer that's not really comparable to anyone else. Right. I've known, I mean, for a start, we're best friends. Yeah. Two, we totally share the same aesthetic and interests. And uh, I always say the thing about Lee is that he can read a book's mind. 
He knows what a book wants to be. It's a, it's, it, he has an intuitive ability to push you harder. One of the things I would say in my experience of other editors or speaking to other writers is editors are often the people who rein you in. You know what I mean? They tighten you up, they rein you in, mm. you know, they, yeah. they take away the excess. Lee will always push you further and harder. You feel, right, okay. You know, and okay. I find that really, really inspiring. No, that's, that, well, that's, that's what art, sh- art should be. It should always be pushing further. You know, there's that famous thing. I think, I think it may have been even said by David Bowie, said, if you're feeling comfortable in what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? Because you've always got to try and do something that is outside your sort of boundaries. And we, 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 all, we, we all do that in life, really. We mm-hmm. all get very comfortable, especially you get into your sort of 30s, 40s, 50s. You're very comfortable with your life. You, you, you know your own personal boundaries and you never want to cross them. But you should do. You should go and see that art movie. You should go and... Yep. You, you, know, you should wear that sweater <laughs> or, you, or you should read that book. Do you know what I mean? Or yeah. you should try that, that, that type of food. And I think we... And I think art does that to us. But I think it should also make us do it ourselves as well yeah and I, I mean think, and i think a lot of the time it doesn't but i think you know hopefully books 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 do it and records do it to mm-hmm. some people but not to all of us but i think that ultimately for me is what art should be it should be yes you go and see something and it opens your mind it unlocks your mind so do something about it yeah yeah i mean music and, and literature were not a soundtrack to my childhood They're, it's as serious as my life and i will never give up and i'll never stop i'm always looking for more adventurous and challenging art and music and literature and i'm constantly pushing myself when i talked about disappearing i think if i ever write a book that i don't feel is advancing what i'm doing that isn't challenging me and that isn't up to the standards of my other books that's when i'm going to disappear that right. will be the signal to sort of disappear but for instance at the moment i'm working on a new book uh, called books of moses and i'm finding it really challenging because it's out of control and I really don't know it, start, it starts off with Moses actually leading the character into the underworld right. and this, that vision came to me so strong and then I'm, I'm in this underworld literally with Moses and then I'm like what is going on and this book is going so slow because I'm so confused by it right. so confused but feeling super challenged and I'm so glad that this far into my career when I've maybe written 10 novels or something that I can still write novels that completely confuse and challenge me. Well, absolutely. And, and hopefully they'll confuse and challenge the uh, readers. So I imagine we'll hear, we'll re- we'll be reading about Moses in maybe sort of 10, 15 years' time. <laughs> Probably, <or something>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once you've disappeared and then come back again to finish it. I or might, something like that. I might leave the books with Braxtone and I'll, and I'll disappear and he can like fr- fr- frittle them out whenever, you know. I'm sure, I'm sure he'll, he'll, he'll probably, he'll, he'll probably put his name to them as well. So just, to, <laughs> just, just to get that little bit of glory. Like, you know, I mean, and, and why the hell not uh, in terms of uh, other types of writing in terms of being a, a critic are you going to do more of that more, no more, more critical writing? no i'm totally yeah. finished with that I'll, totally never, I'll never do music writing again and also i never thought of myself as a critic i thought of myself as an evangelist right. you know i wasn't there to critique i didn't really want to write about what i didn't like i mean if i got commissioned to write about something i didn't like it i'm going to be honest and say i don't like it sure. but i set out to turn people on to new exciting stuff it's just like it's like your your passion as well like we, we get together we're always turning up each other on a new record yeah. and stuff yeah. and that's just what i wanted to do and also i wanted to fight for a place in the culture where challenging music and art could still exist and that's why I love being at White Rabbit Books because I think White Rabbit's mission is exactly that it's fighting to have a place in the culture where we can cheer about radical art and music you know right. queer in a space where it can actually exist fantastic you know? I, was, I, I was trying to I was thinking about one final question to ask you and I've actually remembered what I was going to ask you um, I've recently moved out of London I've moved down to the south coast to St Leonard's on Sea which is near Hastings mm-hmm. and a lot of people in Hastings uh, are obsessed by Alistair Crowley mm-hmm. because he died in yep. Hastings, and um, 
What is it about Crowley in two or three minutes that make people so obsessed about him? Um, I'm, I, I, yeah, I love Alistair Crowley and I love his writings and they've really had a, a remarkable effect on my life. I'm not too much of a fan of his fans, if I'm going to be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> so I wouldn't really think of myself as a Crowley or anything like okay, that, you know. Enough. But, but I, do, I do love what, uh, his writing and he really changed the way that I even saw reality. He does this beautiful thing and he redefines the nature of change as being love. And if you think about this, it's the most incredible thing. Crowley has this thing where everything is longing to be united with what it is not. And so if you can re-see change as love, it's absolutely beautiful. It means time is literally a form of rapture. Yeah. And everything is falling in love with everything else, and that's the nature of change. And when I really internalised that idea, I thought, how absolutely beautiful is that? Crowley does what I try to do in my writing. He uses words alone to point to things that you cannot word. But he gets so close to it, he takes you right up on the very precipice of language, and then he points right. to something just beyond language. That's incredibly moving to me, and wow. it's, really, it's had a really powerful effect on, on my life. That's amazing. That's a beautiful way to end. Let's finish on one final track. What do you want to finish it's with? It's got to be Lee Moses' Bad Girl. Something that happened to me a long time ago. 